This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we go to the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have this time to look into your word. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us, that in a unique way you have revealed uh, yourself through the inscripture, inscripturation of these 66 books, 39 of the Old Testament, 27 of the New. But they have been preserved uniquely for us that we might have your word, that we might take the time to meditate, to reflect, to investigate what you have revealed to us, that we may learn how to think according to your thinking and not according to the ways of the world. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue this study in the Sermon on the Mount, that we might gain greater insight into what, it, what our Lord meant and how it should apply to our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, now that I got that cough out of the way, I want to direct your attention by way of introduction to the last part of Matthew chapter 5. In the last section, remember there are these six sections at the, that, that begin back in verse 21, where Jesus is challenging the popular teaching and understanding of the Mosaic law by the Pharisees. I believe that he is teaching his disciples, a comparison, as I pointed out at the beginning, between uh, Matthew 5.1 and the parallel passage in Luke, that Jesus is talking to his believing disciples. He is not talking to unbelievers, although the crowd does come around him. His primary purpose here is to teach his disciples something about uh, the kingdom and preparation for the kingdom that he is announcing, the message that especially governs the first uh, 12 chapters of Matthew is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is therefore pre preparing this generation for what they must, uh, uh, what must be produced in their life if the kingdom is going to come in. He's not talking about how to receive imputed righteousness. That's a very common view in our circles. Uh, it, but this, as I'll get into this more, especially when we get into the sixth chapter, this runs contrary to what the practical application that he is insisting upon here. And he is contrasting the way of righteousness as it was intended in the Torah with the way it has been perverted by the Pharisees. The way of righteousness, as it was presented in the Mosaic Law and the Torah, was addressed to a redeemed people. 
It was how they should live as redeemed people in the land. They were to be holy as God is holy. That was not talking about an a positional righteousness or imputed righteousness. It was talking about they were to live uh, and have an experiential righteousness. Failure to do so meant that they would be evicted from the land eventually. There were five cycles of discipline that we studied that would God would bring upon the Israelites if they were disobedient, if they failed to be a holy people. Now, holiness did not mean perfection. Holiness did not mean uh, to be sinless. Holiness meant to live in a distinct or unique way set apart to the service of God, for they were called, according to Exodus 19, to be a kingdom of priests distinct among all the nations of the earth. When Jesus was asked how to summarize the law and what the greatest commandments were, he said the first was to worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second was to love your neighbor as yourself. If we look at the structure of these six contrasts, where Jesus is contrasting uh, the interpretation of the Pharisees with his or God's interpretation of the law, it is actually driving to a conclusion, which is to love what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the sixth one. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out as an introduction, we're still back in the fifth one, is because there's an con- in, in, inherent connection between the fifth one and the, the uh, last one. The fifth one really focuses on grace orientation, uh, which is an expression of love for one another. In fact, each of these can be an aspect of what it means to love one another. So in verse 43, Jesus will contrast the, their, their understanding of Leviticus 19.18, which says, you shall love your neighbor. And they've added a phrase, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Then Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This is what Jesus is driving toward. So these previous examples we've seen are all can be seen, and I'll, I'll come back and tie this together for us, as examples of what it means to love one another. Now, we stopped last time in looking at Matthew 5.38, a verse that is frequently misunderstood, misapplied, misinterpreted. Often it's applied in non-personal ways. It's related to warfare. It's related to uh, criminal penalties. It's related in in a legal sense when that's not what Jesus is talking about. uh, Excuse me, in Matthew um, 5.39, we talks about turning the other cheek. We have to understand the context. Matthew 5.38, Jesus expresses the view that is typically expressed by the by the Pharisees. He quotes from the Old Testament passage for uh, the, that is the issue. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, he just takes that one phrase, but he's really talking about uh, an entire statement that's found in a couple of different passages in the Old Testament, one of which is Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 to 25. If any, But if any harm follows, 
Then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, this is not a statement that is endorsing personal retribution. The context of Exodus 21 is two men are fighting, a pregnant woman gets involved, and she is injured and has premature birth. And depending upon the injuries, this is the way the penalties penalties should be assessed. And so this is described as an eye, uh, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. My point that I made last week is that this isn't talking uh, about a literal exact payment, that if somebody is burned, they should be burned in uh, response. If somebody uh, breaks your arm, then their penalty shouldn't be, isn't that their arm should in turn be broken. If you get involved in a fist fight and somebody's tooth gets knocked out, then the other person should lose a tooth. That's not what this is talking about. These are all figures of speech. Leviticus 24:19 does the same, says the same kind of thing. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. Now we di- you didn't don't see examples in the Old Testament of of a person who has caused a disfigurement being himself disfigured. This was never understood in that sort of a wooden, literal fashion. Deuteronomy 19.21 states the same kind of thing. Your eyes shall not pity, life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In context, these aren't talking about personal retribution. They're talking about a guideline for assessing penalties in a courtroom when personal injury has been done. This was referred to by the technical term of lex talionis. Lex talionis is a Latin phrase that means the law of the same kind. And this refers to the principle where uh, the legal penalty that a person should suffer should be uh, should be similar to that that they have inflicted on someone else. The concept is expressed in the Bible as early as Genesis 9:6, which says that if um, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall also be shed. Uh, <clears throat> and it's also stated in the passages I've just quoted. The principle expresses not only the validity of legal retaliation or retribution but also and primarily the requirement of equity and proportionality in the administration of punishment. This is taken from an article on Lex Talionis in the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible. The point of this is that the penalty should fit the crime. The penalty should not be, should not exceed the crime, but it should be in proportion uh, to the crime. The only aspect of this that should be taken literally is life for life, and that is seen in comparison with other passages such as the Genesis 9-6 passage and other passages in Leviticus which authorize and mandate capital punishment. But these are, these are idioms, and idioms are important to understand. I think this is one of the most difficult aspects sometimes of Biblical interpretation. 
is understanding an idiom in a foreign language. If you are learning a second language and then you go to that country and you're hearing people speak, you're often, a person is often confused and bemused by statements that don't seem to make sense because they are idioms. Now, idioms are not interpreted literally. That is, if you take an idiom and you look at the dictionary meaning of each word and then you try to make sense of it, it doesn't compute. It seems confusing because an idiom is a statement that has come to mean something else. It can't mean just anything, but it has come to have a set meaning, and so it is something of a of a figure of speech or a symbol for some other meaning. Now, this is important to understand. We've seen uh, various different figures that are seen in this in the scriptures, but we see this also in this particular verse that we're looking at. For in the second part of the verse, when Jesus says, "Whoever slaps you on your right cheek," Turn the other to him also. That is using a figure of speech. It's using an idiom. And there's rather some amusing idioms, I thought, that uh, I would help you with in terms of how you use them in your everyday language. Now, back in December, the New York Times uh, published a quiz to determine uh, your dialect, your English dialect, and what part of the country uh, you, you, you come from. And some of you may have seen that. That was passed around on the Internet. It was a lot of fun to, to take that. I had a friend of mine who grew up not far from me, um, just within a couple of miles, and we tracked almost identically on, on how we answered those questions. But one that came up that I've always heard in my life, but a lot of you, if you, especially if you're not from certain areas of the Deep South, or certain areas in Texas and around Houston wouldn't wouldn't catch this, and that is the statement that the devil is beating his wife. I always heard it, the devil is beating his wife with a broomstick. Now, some of you may have never heard that. This is actually a very old idiom. It's been traced back to areas in southern Germany. It's been traced back to the Celts. It's been traced back to... Uh, Areas in uh, in the in the Czech Republic, and it, it, it re- for some reason they came up with this. I've read different stories, but it refers to the uh, to the um, uh, odd instance of when the sun is shining while it's also raining. Other parts of the country have some other really weird statements and idioms to describe that. Now get on on the internet sometime. These are a lot of fun. Now, there's some other ones that we use. Last week, I was really hoarse. My voice is just weak this morning. So you might have said something like this. This is kind of a quiz, see if you can figure this out. You might have said that I had a frog in my throat. See, now you just wouldn't take that literally. That has a particular meaning. And it's probably because when a person is hoarse, they sound like they're croaking like a frog. And so the image of a frog being in their mouth uh, and speaking comes to mind. Uh, there's also the uh, idea that this, uh, or a legend with this, that scam artists uh, used to uh, sell fake cures for throat problems. And these merchants would advertise their wares. A helper with a sore throat would take their, their uh, elixir, that would cure them, and then they would cough up a live frog and suddenly regain their voice. 
lot of amusing history to this. Not only does this refer to somebody who talks a rather hoarse, but somebody may not talk at all. And then you would say that the cat has their tongue. Now, there's a couple of these that talk about cat. Both of them probably, or at least in terms of, of the legends, go back to the use of a cat of nine tails. A cat of nine tails was a whip that was used for punishment, and sometimes it would be used to loosen somebody's tongue. But sometimes they would be so afraid that they would never say anything because the cat of nine tails might come out, and then they would be punished. So they would say the cat has got your tongue. At least that's uh, that's one view. Another view is that it comes from a ancient uh, Middle Eastern practice where if someone were a thief, they would have their hand cut off, but if they were a liar, they would have their tongue cut out, and then it would be fed to the cats. You can pick your own explanation. Then we have another idiom. You might use this to describe your kid if he has, if he's hyperactive, that they have ants in their pants. Now the other idiom that relates to the cat of nine tails is this one. Letting the cat out of the bag. Now this is just revealing a secret. But the idea would be that if you're trying to get someone to give up information and they won't give it up willingly, that you want to take out the cat of nine tails and beat it out of them. And so the warning would be that the cat is out of the bag. And then we have one that I remember my mother using uh, a few times, and um, I never really quite understood what it meant, but this is a nice picture of it. Cutting off your nose to spite your face. Now, there's a story that goes with this, and the idea of this idiom is that you will hurt yourself, do something to harm yourself, in order to cause trouble for someone else. Now, no one really knows where this actually started, but the, uh, there's, a, there's a legend that this started in the ninth century when the Vikings were invading Scotland, and they were going to attack a, a convent, and the mother superior, whose name was St. Ebba, had heard that the Vikings were attacking, so she, in order to protect her virginity and the virginity of the nuns in the convent, uh, she cut off her nose and her upper lip, and she insisted that all of the other nuns do so, so they would be too ugly and too unattractive so that the, uh, the Vikings would not rape them. And so it's said that this warning came from that, um, that idea of cutting your nose off to spite your face. Now, this and the next one both relate to our understanding of some of these uh, idioms and hyperbole that we see in uh, in this chapter. For example, back in verse 29, Jesus said, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. See, he's not talking about literally plucking it out any more than this saying literally means to cut off your nose, or this saying that something was so expensive that it cost you an arm and a leg. Now, no one would ever hear that, would think that somebody was literally cutting off an arm and a leg in order to pay for something. Uh, Any more than anybody in Jesus' original audience was thinking that when he said uh, certain things, and he said when he said things like, if your right eye offend you, uh, pluck it out. Uh, If your right hand offend you, cut it off. 
Uh, he wasn't talking literally. He was using exaggeration and idiom to make a point, just as we do in native English all the time. The problem is we're not familiar with first century idioms and uh, and statements like that. So often people have misunderstood and misinterpreted statements because they took them literally when they were figurative expressions. We also have the problem of those who take things that are meant to be literal and applying a figurative or allegorical meaning to them. So that's why it's very important to do homework on these kinds of things to properly understand the Scripture. Now, the issue in Matthew 5.39 is a personal situation. It is, it's dealing with a situation, and all of the examples that follow are dealing with personal situations where someone is, uh, is doing something evil or, or taking advantage of a believer and how the believer should respond when someone is seeking to do them harm personally. This is not talking about, uh, should not be applied to warfare. This is not a verse for international pacifism. It's not a verse for personal pacifism in terms of not serving in the military. It's not a verse dealing with how or whether or not criminals should be punished. It is dealing with how we as individuals respond to someone who is doing something to us personally and how we are to treat them with grace orientation, even though they are seeking to do us harm. And so as I pointed out last time with the opening of the verse here, uh, Jesus says, I tell you not to resist an evil person. And the word there that's translated resist is antistemi, which is used several places that we are to resist the devil. Uh, so this is not talking about re- not resisting the evil one. It's not a neuter here. It's, it should be understood as a masculine. It could be either one. Uh, so it's talking about an evil person, someone who's seeking to do us harm. Uh, there are other passages that we are to resist sin. But So this is not talking about a principle, resisting a principle. It's talking about resisting evil. And, um, and the word for evil there can mean to be morally or socially worthless, wicked, evil, bad, base, vicious, or degenerate. So this is when somebody is simply trying to maybe abuse us, maybe to take advantage of us, maybe to defraud us, and we are uh, the objects of their attention. So the basic command is to not resist an evil person. We are not to put up a fight. We are to respond to them out of generosity and graciousness. So the first observation we have here is that this is a personal command related to interpersonal behavior. It's not to be applied nationally or in terms of criminality or that kind of a thing. Second thing is that the behavior that Jesus is teaching is consistent with righteousness. That's what he's uh, explaining in Matthew 5 through 7 is what a righteous life looks like in terms of experiential righteousness, the kind of life that you characterize a citizen of the kingdom. Now, as I've said before, I believe that uh, in the view that th- that what Jesus is teaching here is an interim uh, uh, an interim righteousness or a uh, the, the interim lifestyle 
before the kingdom comes in. We'll get see more of that later on. It's clear from chapter 6, he's talking to believers. When he talks about uh, when, when he teaches them to pray, they pray to their father. It's clearly he's talking to believers. Uh, things that he says in the prayer are clearly talking about believers. So he's talking about how the believer should live a life of righteousness. He gives four examples here in the next verses. First of all, how to handle personal insults. That's what we're talking about here when he says, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. He then will talk about a situation where you're being taken advantage of in the courtroom. Uh, third example comes from uh, oppressive government when you are being forced to do something you don't want to do. And the fourth example deals with grace and generosity to those who are in financial need and ask uh, for your assistance. I pointed out last time that the concept here is not ever not whoever hits you. It's not talking about somebody coming up and giving you a right cross. It's talking about being slapped. And if you think about this, he goes on to say, whoever slaps you on your right cheek. Now, for those who weren't here last week, I'll explain this to you. If I am facing you, as we are in this audience, and I were to reach out and slap you, which cheek am I hitting you on? I'm hitting you on your left cheek. If I want to slap you on your right cheek, I have to backhand you. This is a sign of an offensive insult. And it was understood that way in uh, the Jewish community, that if somebody backhanded you, this was an insult. And so he uses this not to talk about the fact that, that pe- not to indicate that people were running around Judea uh, uh, backhanding each other, but that this represented uh, being insulted or being someone offending you. And so what Jesus is saying is, if somebody offends you, if somebody insults you, if somebody is seeking to take advantage of you, then turn the other cheek. In other words, don't fight back. Don't return kind for kind. Don't revile them. We have other scriptures that teach these things. Don't um, uh, react to him, but deal with him in grace and generosity. So the first example is an example of treating the offending party in grace. Don't wear your feelings on your shirt sleeves. Don't be easily offended. That's one of the real sins. You know, the worst sin, I heard somebody say this this last week, the worst sin in this culture is racism. The worst sin in this culture is being hypersensitive and and letting other people offend you when no offense is met. Now, I know there are many people who go around trying to offend people, but what this passage is talking about, even if they're trying to offend you, don't react to that. Don't lower yourself to their level. Don't let them set the terms of the engagement. Just respond to them in grace and generosity. This is then illustrated in the next example, which is taken from a courtroom situation. And in the courtroom situation, you have a person who is taking one person to court to take advantage of them and to uh, take what is rightfully theirs for themselves. So Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you, remember this is the second example of what it means to resist an evil person. 
if are, are not resisting an evil person. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So the context here is a context of a courtroom situation where a person is being sued. He is, if we were to paraphrase this, uh, we would put it, if anyone wants to take you to court to acquire your tunic. Now, this, again, is a figure of speech. A tunic simply represents something, some material possession that is important to you. In the ancient world, the tunic was very valuable. It's the outer garment, and it was important for staying warm uh, during the winter. In Exodus 22, 25 to 27, we have an example of this. Somebody is uh, being loaned money, and so the outer garment, the tunic, was then given as a pledge for the debt. And... Um, and, and the law says, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, that's the outer garment that we're talking about, the tunic, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. In other words, don't take something important to him for his comfort and his survival, but return it back to him uh, before the sun goes down, before it's cold at night, for that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What, what will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Even in this, God is teaching that in the handling of, of the matter of, of, of debt and uh, creating a loan, that you are to deal with the person in need out of grace and not out of a desire to gain uh, for oneself. The same thing is articulated again in, Math, uh, in Deuteronomy 24, 10 through 13. Now, in the passage that we're talking about here, uh, where, where Jesus says that uh, if anyone wants to sue you or take you to court and take away your tunic, let him have your coat also, Jesus is saying that this is a situation that has arisen where there's a conflict between two people. And one person wants to make a federal case out of what you have and wants to take that from you. And if peace can be maintained or restored between you and the other person, then you shouldn't let material possessions be the cause of the rupture in the relationship. Remember the many passages we've studied where the scriptures say that we are to seek peace with others. Now, uh, some people just want to take advantage of us. Some people just are never going to have peace with us. Some people have set themselves on their own, own course. That's not what this is talking about. In a situation where one person is asserting their, their self-rights and the, and the issue is that you have something that they think they should have, that if you can solve the problem and restore peace to the relationship by letting them have it, then don't let a material possession be the cause of the disruption in the personal relationship. But you see, there's, I'm not talking about the situation where there are people who are just using that as an excuse to get what you have. That's a different situation. Because even if you give it to them, that's not going to restore peace to the relationship. This is a situation where what is at issue if it were resolved by giving it to them that that would restore peace to the relationship, don't let a material possession be the cause of a disruption in, in a relationship. 
So Jesus is using this uh, principle to uh, to teach how to handle legal abuse. So he is te- teaching, again, grace orientation, that we should be willing to give up even more than what may be required in order to maintain a testimony, in order to maintain a relationship uh, with the other person. Now, the third example is an example that deals with when an authority has an unreasonable demand upon you. And Jesus is basically saying that it's better to willingly give more than is expected. That's the theme that really runs through this. Don't react in kind. See, what the Pharisees were saying when they would quote from... uh, the Old Testament, for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, if somebody insulted them in a small way, if somebody did something to them in a small way, then you were t- supposed to retaliate in kind. And Jesus is saying just the opposite. Don't let these little non-essential things get in the way of living a righteous lifestyle. Deal with people in grace and in generosity. So in the third example, he says, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, this relates to a situation in the Roman Empire where a Roman soldier had the authority to take someone off the street and press them into service and say, I want you to carry my baggage for for a mile. That was what the limit was, was was one mile. We see an example of this kind of thing. In the Gospels, in, for example, Matthew 27, 31, when Simon of Cyrene was pressed into service to carry the Lord's cross, they just grabbed him out of the crowd and said, you need to carry this man's cross. He had no choice but to do it. That's, that's one example. And so this is a situation that was common in, uh, in Judea at the time under Roman authority that just anybody could be taken off the off the streets to carry and transport a soldier soldier's baggage for a a mile, and so this of course outraged the Jews. It outraged the, the, their pride, and they wanted to rebel against this and refused to do it. And Jesus says that's not being submitted to authority. It's not being grace oriented. If someone compels you to go a mile, go two miles. Respond in joy to what they're doing. Don't respond in anger. You know, it's not about you. That's the main issue. Remember your little sin nature, my little sin nature says it's all about me. I got other things to do. You don't have any right to tell me to do that. When the person has every right in the world to do that, it's just something you don't want to do. And so, uh, Jesus says respond uh, joyfully. Don't just go a mile. Go two miles. Make sure you give them what they need. Again, he's dealing with A figure of speech, he's talking hyperbolically, but the point is be willing to do more than what is asked, what what you're being compelled to do. And then the fourth example, in Matthew 5.42, says, Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Again, this is an example of being grace-oriented. Of course, any of these, whenever you deal with people in grace, you always run the risk of somebody taking advantage of you. I'm not going to take a first show of hands, but I bet there's not a person in this room 
who hasn't taken advantage of God's grace at least once or twice in the last 48 hours. That's what happens when you deal with people in grace. There are some people who, for whatever reason, are going to abuse the privilege, and they're going to abuse your grace. That's not the issue. The issue is to do that which is right, and in order to do that, Jesus gives this example. Give to him who asks. Now, when somebody is in genuine distress, now I want to emphasize that because it's, it, it, there are always people who want something that you have, who want to take advantage of you, and, and they don't have a legitimate need. And this isn't talking about that. This is talking about a person who has a legitimate need, and you can meet that need, whether it's financial or whether it's material, whatever it is, and they come to you and say, will you help me? That our tendency is, no, we want to keep what's ours. And what this is saying is, no, we need to be generous. We need to help those who are in genuine need around us, and we shouldn't turn away from them. The Pharisees had a system where they came up with all kinds of uh, legalizations for not taking care of even their parents who were their responsibility. We'll study some of those things later on. They sought ways to avoid being gracious to anyone so that they didn't really have to give. And so they really didn't have to help anyone. And so Jesus gives this fourth example that we should be generous and that we should um, help those who are in need. He's not advocating giving all of your material possessions away or giving everything away to someone who asks just because they ask, but in order to help those who are in uh, genuine need. Now, next time we're going to come back and look at the last section, but I want to just want to point this out. He immediately moves from what he has said in these verses to explaining the principle of loving your neighbor. And there's a connection here. He's built to this. He talks about basically dealing with others in grace, even when they seek to take advantage of you. And then he finishes by talking about what it means to genuinely love your neighbor as yourself or as Christ says when he when he intensifies that command that by this all men will know that you are my disciples because you have love for one another and you love one another as I have loved you and so the pattern doesn't begin doesn't uh, uh, is is no longer love your neighbor as yourself it's love one another as Christ loved you and the only way we can fulfill that mandate is if we're walking by the spirit and the Holy Spirit is developing maturity in our lives. So next time we'll come back and we'll wrap up with the sixth example from Matthew chapter 5. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to take a look at these examples and to be reminded of the fact that we have sin natures and they're grasping and they're self-absorbed and our sin natures cause us to think that life is really all about us. And the issue is that life is all about you and that we are to serve you and we are to emulate your grace and your love and your righteousness in our lives. And these examples that our Lord is giving are difficult for us to uh, implement because they run counter to our self-absorbed, self-centered natures. But, Father, only through your grace, through God the Holy Spirit, our consistent walk, uh, by means of the Holy Spirit, can this be overcome. 
I pray that you would challenge us with these things. Now, Father, also we understand that these are not ways to earn salvation. For anyone who's here who's not sure of their eternal destiny, not certain of their salvation, uh, these passages are not talking about what you need to do to be saved. They're talking about what a saved person should do to emulate God the Father. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not certain of your salvation, the issue is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. He paid the penalty for every sin in human history so that by simply trusting in him, we might have eternal life. That's the only issue. The issue isn't sin anymore. The issue is what are you trusting in for salvation? You're either trusting in your own works, your own effort, or you're trusting in Christ. And the scripture is clear that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We simply trust in Christ for our salvation. Now, Father, we ask that you would keep us mindful of the things that we've studied this morning and that you, God the Holy Spirit would drive home the application in our lives and that we might be responsive to that. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.